I have uh, some wise wisdom from uh, Dr. Zeus. And uh, he says this, when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. Uh, there is perhaps no worse feeling than that of despair. Uh, despair is a feeling that uh, nothing can or will improve a difficult or challenging situation. Uh, you've heard lots of stories about people surviving the most grueling types of situations, uh, whether that be because of natural disaster or perhaps because of great evil in the world, or maybe just bereft by life's unfairness. Uh, but if man can cling onto a sliver of hope, they can endure much. Uh, it's only when this hope is extinguished that man's will to continue is broken. It's when life is void of that hope that darkness wins. Uh, this is why living with hope is perhaps the most essential factor for enduring difficult situations. Uh, it's no secret that we are all facing uh, different circumstances, different challenges. Uh, we're facing them on a personal and, and individual level and a, and a household level. And uh, perhaps like never before, we are being made to be uh, aware of the challenges facing us as a community. Uh, you know, we're defined by the local government area that we live in. We're defined by the state of Australia that we're in, or even our country that we live in and our response to crisis management, both here and on foreign soil. And so as this situation is prolonged and as it is, you know, gets drawn out, it uh, seems wise, it seems prudent to look at what it means to live with hope, both for us now in our immediate context, as well as for the future. And I thought that we would do that uh, by looking at a character in the Bible who had to endure some pretty difficult circumstances. Uh, you probably already seen the YouTube title. And, uh, and so we're going to look at the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, now, the word Habakkuk, or his name Habakkuk, is uh, pronounced quite differently depending on who you ask. Um, I think if yeah, I looked up on YouTube and if you ask Australians, they very often will say Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Um, but if you ask the Bible Project or all the American preachers, they say Habakkuk. And so I'm going to try and say Habakkuk. Uh, I'm sorry if that offends you, uh, but uh, we're going to try and go with that. Uh, so Habakkuk lived around 600 uh, BC at a time when things looked particularly bleak uh, for God's people in Judah's history. Uh, his book has a very interesting structure. Uh, it's not quite like any of the other prophets because it records for us this dialogue between himself and God. And Habakkuk poses these very difficult questions to God, and it's very interesting. And so instead of uh, presenting, I guess, a three-point kind of sermon, uh, I hope that we will be able to learn from Habakkuk's conversation with God and follow his journey from despair to hope. Uh, so let me give you some context. Uh, at, at this particular point in time in Israel's history, the northern tribes of Israel have been swallowed up and assimilated by the Assyrians. Uh, they, they've just come into power in about 120 years ago in 722 BC, uh, before Habakkuk. And uh, the remaining southern kingdom of Judah would receive its fair share of failed kings. Uh, up until this point in time, the people of God have fallen back into apostasy. Uh, the temple has been desecrated by irreligious acts and the people have been sacrificing children to pagan gods. And now on top of all this, they were constantly subject to the attacks and the brutality of the Assyrians, knowing what they had done to their northern counterparts. And it's against this backdrop that Habakkuk cries out to God. 
Uh, now, we're going to be following along in God's Word, uh, and I'm actually going to get Chris to come and read for us portions of Scripture as we come up to them. And so, here's Chris. Hello. Okay, whoa. This camera's focus. Okay, um, we're going to read Habakkuk, 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 chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Thanks, Chris. Uh, the book opens with Habakkuk's first complaint to God, and that is, how long, O Lord? And if you look at the language that he uses, he says things like, how long will you do nothing? How long will you tolerate all this? Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, strife, conflict. The law is paralyzed. Justice is perverted. The wicked prevail. I don't know if any of this may sound familiar to you. Um, you know, he's obviously facing very intense and serious consequences to the things that are going on around him. I think some of us, we might be tempted to make the same plea to God. And, you know, we shouldn't uh, pretend here our situation, you know, in New South Wales under lockdown, it, it pales by comparison to what Habakkuk is facing here. But that's not to say that the question of evil and the question of suffering and hopelessness, all of that is very real. And we can feel that on a day-to-day -day basis. Indeed, we look at the news, we look at the media, we hear about Afghanistan, we hear about COVID in India and the rest of the world, and, and we cannot help but ask the same questions. Lord, what are you doing about evil? What are you doing about suffering in this world? How can you allow corrupt leaders to continue leading? Why do you let injustice continue while the innocent suffer? Uh, you'll notice that Habakkuk's questions of God are, are very pointed, they're very direct. Uh, he doesn't begin with, you know, worship or praise or, you know, an acknowledgement of God's divine nature or his eternal power. Rather, he dives straight in. He's practically accusing God. Why are you not saving? Why do you make me look at injustice? Almost as though God himself were perpetrating it. Habakkuk looks at all this evil around him, and he cannot help but point the finger at God. Maybe that's us. Maybe that's you right now. No doubt you've had similar questions. Uh, you hear about the loss of a loved one or you have friends who are going through some pretty serious stuff and, and you, you ask God, why God would you allow such a thing? What good could possibly come from this thing? How long do we have to endure it? And instead of smiting him, smiting Habakkuk for his borderline arrogance, God actually gives him a reply. God doesn't owe him anything, but God sees Habakkuk's heart and his rawness and his desperation, and God honors him with a response. Now, I believe God is gracious with Habakkuk because he sought out God and because he chose to pour out his heart to him despite his grievances, despite his complaints. Now, the Bible is very real. It doesn't downplay the human experience. No, it doesn't pretend that we don't have real issues with real consequences. Uh, if you want to read a very depressing psalm, just check out Psalm 88. 
Uh, there is no you know, lift at the end of this psalm. There's no uptick where the psalmist declares that everything is now fine because God has come and rescued me. It literally ends with the words, darkness is my closest friend. That's tragic despair right there. And yet here's the thing, God totally allows it. He includes these renditions of despair in the Bible as examples for us because God knows the human heart. He knows the reality. He knows the depth of our suffering. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned by the entire world. And he even encourages us. He welcomes us to bring it all before him. Even if we come with incorrect, clouded theology, even if we can barely make sense of it ourselves, God is ready with whatever doubts, whatever questions, whatever accusations we may even have, and he is more than able to handle them. You don't need to worry about hurting God's feelings. He knows what you're going to ask even before you ask it. He's familiar with anything that you could be going through, as we heard last week from Joe, and he is gracious and he is patient with us. <clears throat> and so, in true to God's character, he grants Habakkuk a response to his pointy inquiry in verses 5 to 11. Chris. Okay. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. God's answer to Habakkuk is very surprising. Uh, you know, remember Habakkuk has just asked God about the question of evil and suffering and how long he has to put up with it. But instead of a gentle reassurance or, you know, a comforting word from God, God's reply is this. I'm going to raise up an evil superpower, that is the Babylonians, and I'm going to punish the Assyrians and all those who are doing evil in Judah. I'm going to discipline them using the Babylonians. That's how I'm going to do it. It would kind of be like if Habakkuk were in this time, it would be like God saying, I'm going to start World War Three, and, you know, China is going to wipe out the US. Now, that's the kind of shock value that Habakkuk would have uh, felt when he heard this news. And history shows us that God does fulfill this plan. In 586 BC, in a, you know, a number of years' time in Habakkuk's lifetime, Jerusalem would fall to the Babylonians. And look at how God describes these Babylonians. He says they're ruthless, they're impetuous, they're godless, they're cruel people who were a law unto themselves. It's not at all the answer that we or Habakkuk expect. And it really raises many more questions than perhaps the initial question would have, ex uh, would have expressed. Um, but, but God here is, is totally unapologetic. Right. In fact, God prefaces his answer in verse five, verse five with you know, this amazing statement. He says, 
I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. God says to Habakkuk, I'm literally going to do something that will blow your mind. And, and the way that he speaks to these Babylonians in such a complimentary way, it, it uh, reminds me of um, how God speaks of the behemoth or Leviathan in Job 41 and 42. Uh, you know, these Babylonians, they're horses, they're, they're swifter than leopards. They, they fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They advance like a desert wind and, and they laugh at fortified cities. Uh, to, to Job, it was a flexing of his divine muscles and creative power. You know, look at the things that I've created. Where were you, O oh man? But here in Habakkuk, God flexes his sovereign right, his sovereign right to use evil in this world to accomplish his purposes. Uh, likewise with Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, God intends to use the Babylonians who are bent on harm to accomplish his greater purposes. God's answer to the injustice and evil perpetrated by his own people is to use an even more depraved, a more godless people, and to conquer them, to discipline them. And this, of course, begs even more perplexing questions from Habakkuk, verses 12 to 17. So reading from Habakkuk, chapter 1, 12 to 17. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you, never, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained. I've lost it. <laughs> you, my, you, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Habakkuk's reply is so very human. Lord, I know that you are good. I know that you are holy. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And yet... You're going to use these even more wicked people to swallow up those more righteous than themselves. How are you going to do that? Does that not somehow violate your own perfectly moral and pure nature to use evil in this capacity? How can you allow the wicked to keep destroying nations without mercy? You know, he compares them to a fisherman pulling up fish from their dragnets. How does this answer the question of evil? Will not evil keep on prevailing? God has given Habakkuk a response, but it's not really an answer, at least not one that he expects from God. Often the answers that we, we get from God are not the full picture. He may reveal to us just a fraction of the jigsaw, just enough so that we can keep looking for the next puzzle piece. Uh, Jesus himself would often draw his listeners in by teaching in parables. Those who really want to understand him will keep pursuing him and seeking him. And likewise, if we really, really want to meet with God, if we want to hear from him, we need to seek him at a greater than, than superficial level. And here, Habakkuk is another example for us to follow. Even though God responds to him, he still has these unanswered questions. And so he waits expectantly on God. See how he does this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give 
to this complaint. Backlick stations himself at the watchtower. Ramparts are like fortified walls that they would have on the perimeter or perhaps a, a section carved out in a hill uh, where they could see the enemy advancing. And so Habakkuk stations himself there and he's expectantly uh, waiting patiently. He's pressing in and he's eagerly scanning the horizon for God's response. He's saying to God, I'm listening and eager to hear from you. Now, this is a world of difference from the kinds of prayers that I sometimes pray. Sometimes I pray carelessly or, or half-heartedly. Uh, you know, the kinds of prayers that we kind of just throw out there, not really interested in, in God's response, whether he responds to them or not. Um, I remember in our Bible study, we, we did um, this uh, study on prayer. And uh, the, the speaker, he talked about how the first thing that we need to do is to actually stop praying. So not pray another word. Uh, and his point was that, you know, we shouldn't pray another word until we recognize to whom we're praying. You know, perhaps there are times where you've prayed irreverently or carelessly. And, and unlike myself, we, we offer up to God these meaningless platitudes, these, these words that are empty. And obviously, this is not how we ought to pray. And, and Habakkuk, like Habakkuk, we should really mean what we pray. And when we've earnestly prayed, we should also earnestly await with patient expectation that God will respond. And sure enough, Habakkuk's attentiveness and sensitivity to God is rewarded. He says here in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. We're not sure how long Habakkuk exactly had to wait. It you know, probably was hours, it could have been days, maybe even weeks, months, possibly even years. But his patience is fully rewarded. The Lord does indeed answer him, and he answers him in no uncertain terms. He makes it abundantly clear what he's about to reveal. And the fact is, it's not just for Habakkuk. It's for all who are seeking an answer to this question of evil and of suffering. How do we know this? Well, God explicitly, explicitly tells him to write it down on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Chisel his response in stone so that a messenger can faithfully transmit it to all the faithful remaining in Judah and pass it down for generations to come. Proclaim it to all who will listen. And what is this grand revelation? Well, with regards to evil, it is this simple reassurance. An end is coming. You see, God has ordained the expiry date of evil. He's mapped out its conclusion, and it is surely approaching. There is an appointed time when all evil will be vanquished, the righteous will be vindicated, and the wicked will be judged. We need to only wait. Although it may seem slow in coming, do not worry. It is on its way, and nothing will prevent it from happening. A day is coming when God will deal with evil once and for all, and it will be tolerated no more. See, evil and sin was dealt a fatal blow when Jesus conquered it through his death and resurrection. He took our sin, he buried it, he overcame it. He broke its hold over us forever, and he made a way for humanity to be reconciled back to the Father. But there still remains for us this question of evil, this question of wickedness, rebellion, and sin that comes even from within our own hearts. 
Fortunately for us who have put our trust in Jesus, sin is no longer our master, for Christ has washed us clean. We are freed from sin's power and its penalty. However, the residual effects of living in a fallen world and the corruptible nature of sin and our human nature mean that we are not immune to sin or immune to its wickedness. We still suffer its consequences, whether we sin ourselves or of the sin of those around us. Uh, on August 15th in 1945, Japan surrendered to the Allies, bringing an end to World War II. The US, they declared victory, the war was finally over. However, there did remain isolated Japanese forces throughout Asia and the Pacific who refused to, res who refused to surrender for months and even years afterwards, some even refusing up until the 1970s. Even though the war was over, these people had not heard the message or they refused to believe that their government would surrender. And it would actually take the Allies many months of cleanup operations to enact the victory that they had won. See, Christ's death and resurrection marks his victory over sin and death. His victory is declared, it is once and for all, he has been given all authority in heaven and earth and it belongs to him. But the cleanup operation is still in progress. The residual effects of sin, the rebellion of those who oppose Jesus, and the renewal of all creation is still awaiting the final blow when Christ returns. This is the time that Revelation 21.4 speaks of, when he will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Alpha and the Omega will make all things new, and only life will await those on his side. Therein lies the message of hope that dispels our despair. This is the message that all of humankind needs to hear, both you and I, now more than ever. Jesus is coming back soon. That day is guaranteed. By comparison, the certainty of Jesus' return in the future makes the chance of the sun rising tomorrow look like a, to a coin toss. Nobody may know the time or the hour, but the outcome is certain. Psalm 20, 27, 13 and 14 says this, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So be patient. Take heart and be of good courage, the Lord is near. And like Habakkuk says, though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. God continues his reply to Habakkuk by announcing how he will dispense justice. And he pronounces five woes on the Babylonians from chapter 2, verses 4 through to 19. It's a bit of a long one. Yeah, follow along if you've got your Bibles open, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 to 19. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will not they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities. 
and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city without, with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he makes idols that speak, cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. If Habakkuk thought that God was unaware or had somehow overlooked all the evil that was being perpetrated, then this reply would certainly have put his mind at ease. God categorically lists the many sins which the Babylonians will pay for, including the ones that they haven't even committed yet. God will hold them all to account for all of their evil, their corruption, their injustice, the exploitation of the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, their bloodshed, their arrogance, their debaucherous and shameful ways, their violence and destruction, and above all, their idolatry. God sees it all. And as we learned last week, God is privy to the king's chambers, and he hears what is spoken in secret. He sees us in our need. He knows the cries of our hearts, but he also knows of all the evil acts committed by mankind. And for a time, it looks like they prosper. But God knows their demise full well. He knows that the idols that they cry out to will do nothing to save them from his coming wrath. At the end of the Lord's reply, Habakkuk writes in verse 20, The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Perhaps like a rapper after driving home his final rhyme in a rap battle, or maybe like Kirby Bryant after his retirement speech, but actually way before any of those things existed and in a far greater fashion, God drops the mic on Habakkuk, figuratively, of course. Habakkuk is left astonished. He's left stunned in awe of the Lord's emphatic and breathtaking response. Will God deal with evil in this world? It's a resounding yes, and you better believe it. Habakkuk, after his first two sets of complaints, is left utterly speechless completely humbled by God's reply. Habakkuk suspected that God didn't care about the rapid wickedness that he saw, but he now realizes how truly wrong he was. You see, God's desire for purity and holiness is expressed by his fierce wrath and judgment reserved for those who rebel against his good order. God's desire for justice is far greater than anything that we or Habakkuk have ever felt. 
Don't be lulled into thinking that just because we can't hear God's voice or see God's hand at work, that he does not care. Nothing could be further from the truth. Habakkuk finally recognizes the position of God alone as Lord of all, and that all should remain silent in reverent awe before him. We would be wise to acknowledge his lordship and do likewise. In chapter 3, having been humbled by the Lord, Habakkuk is moved to worship with this majestic hymn-like prayer. So following along in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 to 15. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the old age hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kashan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you thrashed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of the wickedness, of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Habakkuk attempts to capture the majesty of the Lord and his power by describing his mighty acts. And as with all such revelations of God's glory, words can hardly express the greatness of his majesty. His glory covers the heavens. His praise fills the earth. His splendor, it's like the sunrise. His judgment is like a plague in pestilence before him. Mighty mountains collapse. The river and seas and nature balk at his passing. The sun and moon forget to shine before him. The language closely echoes Psalm 77, 16 to 19, which says, The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwinds, the lightning lit up the worlds, the earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Such is God's glory that the earth and the heavens and all of creation acknowledge and resound in praise to him. In verse 13, Habakkuk alludes to the Lord's anointed, that is, Jesus, and his role in delivering his people from the evil one. <clears throat> You'll notice how this revelation of God stands in stark contrast to the beginning of the book. Uh, at the start of the book, Habakkuk only has demanding questions, but here he's in complete awe of God. That's the kind of faith journey of faith that God wants us to share. 
You see, having doubts, questions, fears, worries, they don't have to stunt or cripple our faith. When we bring them honestly and openly before God and when we entrust them to him, he will grant us this perspective. He will grant us the strength to trust in him and to grow our faith. And Habakkuk demonstrates what God says back in chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous will live by faith. Faith, of course, is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of what we do not see. We hope and long for the day, not just when evil will be dealt with, but for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our doubts, our fears and questions are all opportunities to grow our faith if we cho choose to learn from Habakkuk's example. And finally, the last four verses of Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. For the Director of Music on string, my stringed instruments. Finally, Habakkuk concludes with perhaps um, a peculiar arrangement. Uh, at this point, after reading everything we just read, you might have thought that Habakkuk would be supremely confident in God. He's just declared some of the most uplifting and encouraging verses in Scripture that speak of God's greatness and his majesty. But here, verses 16 and 17, there is this acknowledgement of the reality that he faces. He heard this message and his heart pounded, his lips quivered, decay crept into his bones and his legs trembled. You see, Habakkuk is lamenting the fact that he and all of Judah are about to face the Babylonian invasion. His heart is melting under the realization of God's coming judgment, despite the knowledge and understanding he has of God's greater plans. And yet he still manages to resolve in his heart to wait patiently for this day. He chooses to proceed in faith, confident of the hope that he has in God, instead of succumbing to his feelings despite this impending calamity. And perhaps there are fewer other greater statements of faith such as this found in the Old Testament in verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Habakkuk's situation has not really changed outwardly. His circumstances of violence and injustice are still all around him as real as they were back in chapter 1. In fact, objectively speaking, his outlook is even worse than it was before. Now he, is, now he knows of the coming invasion of the Babylonians. His situation, whether speaking of his present circumstances or the ones that have come under imminent Babylonian rule, can only be described as desolate and dire. There's no life, there's no food, there are no animals, there's no source of sustenance. There is no reason to be happy. And yet he still manages to choose to rejoice in the Lord and find joy in God, his Saviour. I love that Habakkuk here is so real with us. He doesn't hide the fact that he still has his weaknesses. 
He still has fears. He still has worries. But he acknowledges the reality of his desperate situation. And he can face it head on because his joy is not based on those feelings or those circumstances, but on the steadfastness of the Lord. This is what it means to live with hope. Even if every material blessing were to be taken from him, all his freedom and even this incoming wrath, nothing can diminish this renewed hope that he has in God. This is the kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. This is the peace that Jesus offers, not as the world gives. This kind of hope can transform the doom and gloom of verse 16 and 17 into the assurance and even jubilance found in verse 18 and 19. The sovereign Lord is his strength. He makes his feet like the feet of a deer and enables him to tread on the heights. I have this photo frame that uh, Carla made for me. Let's see if you can see that and read that. I don't know if you can read that, but uh, it's Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. For obvious reasons, issues of mental health are becoming more and more prevalent in society at large. Uh, this you know, sermon and this passage is not a claim to be some quick fix or some you know, five-step plan. Uh, I, I can't offer anything like that. Uh, but I do believe that it contains real reasons for an ultimate hope, uh, particularly in the face of adversity. It's a real and it's a solid hope and one that is trustworthy and reliable. And like any sermon or reading of God's word, the real change is not instigated, instigated by anything I or you or anyone else does, but it comes from God's spirit working in us. And so I encourage you to dwell on God's word and to be sensitive to his spirit as he speaks to you. Like Habakkuk, may we station ourselves at the watchtower and give God a chance to speak to us throughout all of the chaos and the uncertainty that we face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word to us is very real, that it's very real, that it's very rich, that it's relevant for us, particularly in our situation even now. And I thank you, Lord, that your word offers to us hope, a real hope, something that we can trust and rely on, something that doesn't change like our circumstances around us. And Father, I thank you so much for the example of Habakkuk and the things that he endured so that we can now hear this message, this message that should be heralded and, and shared with all, this message of hope, this message that one day you are going to return and you're going to finally answer this question of evil. Father, I thank you that we can trust in you and that we can put our hopes in you, that even if all material blessings were to be taken away from us, we could still trust and hope in you. And Father, I pray that we would turn to you in these times and that we would hear from you. Give us ears to hear. Help us to be patient as Habakkuk was and help us to lean completely on you. Father, I commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.